You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. And if you are joining us on the live stream this morning, thank you so much for worshiping with us digitally. My name's Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you. I was on vacation. I'm heavier. I'm tanner. I'm glad to be back uh, with you. If it's your first time at Creekside, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. We would love to give you a free gift this morning if it is your very first time with us. Oh, it is me. See that? Um, And it's a free gift uh, tumbler or a sippy cup or a water bottle. You can get that over at the info desk, and that's our gift to you if it is your first time with us. Uh, If you would like more information about our church or there's something you can would like prayer about, there's a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Lots of exciting things this morning. We've got a baptism, second service, so celebrating new life in Christ. That's something to applaud, absolutely. So, hey, if you want to hang out, show up at the end of second service, and we can all celebrate wildly together. Another thing I want to do is just celebrate our theater program. It was a challenging year. We didn't have a theater program for most of COVID, but we just had a theater camp here at Creekside. And this last Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, our kids, a bunch of kids from the community put on four performances, four performances of Winnie the Pooh. So I just want to give them a hand, give Jenny and Robinette a hand for the fantastic job they did. So that's all the good news, and now the bad news is my sermon, so uh, (laughs) let's get into it. As some of you know, uh, one of my all-time favorite quotes is from Homer Simpson, and it is one of the great demotivational sayings of all time. Homer said, Marge, trying is the first step toward failure. Trying is the, I love that. I I, I want that motivational picture in my office. Because have you ever felt that way? You you try something and and almost the minute you set out to do it, you have this gnawing sense that this this isn't going to work. This is going to fail. We feel this way as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We we might try to pursue the good, to love our neighbors, to share Jesus. But, But if we're honest, a lot of times it just seems futile. Things don't seem to get better. People don't seem to change. We don't seem to make any impact on those around us. And our faithfulness just feels fruitless. Trying is the first step towards failure. Now, in the past, here's how I'd cope with that. You ever felt that way? Let's be honest. You ever felt that way? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe you would. Here's how I'd cope with that feeling. I would tell myself, okay, Jeff, if you stay faithful, if you grit it out, God will do something big with your life, something massive, and he'll do it in our generation. And of course, I would play a rather significant role in whatever that thing was that God was going to do. And many people would come to Christ, and and the kingdom of God would advance. And and here's the thing, I'm just sort of Hearing this more and more in Christian culture right now, hearing people talk this way, that as we come out of COVID, God is going to do something momentous and extraordinary, and and it's going to be big. 
and we need to get ready for it. And, and listen, maybe we're on the cusp of that. Maybe that's the case. If, if you look at church history, there are certainly times when God shows up and everyone goes, whoa. You look at the first three centuries of the church and the early expansion of Christianity. You look at the, the global expansion of Christianity in the last hundred years, and, and there are seasons and inflection points where God moves in miraculous ways, and things change quickly. Society transforms. The kingdom of God advances. That can happen, and there's a word for it. Christians call it revival. It's this time when God works in a special way, a unique way, and he will bring widespread repentance and reconciliation and renewal to his people and then through his people to the world. Now hear me. I pray it would happen. I pray it would happen in our lifetime. In fact, I pray for it more now than I've ever prayed for it in my entire life. But I've also come to believe that the thing, the, the fuel for my faithfulness as a disciple of Jesus cannot be revival. It can't be this hope that everything's going to get better. Here's why. They might not. What if things don't get better? What if they get worse? Because the truth is this. There are ebbs and flows in redemptive history. There are different seasons, and we don't know what season we're in. And so the, the tension that we have to grapple with is this. How do you stay faithful when faithfulness feels fruitless? And we might not see God do the big thing in our time. Or we might not see all the outcomes we want in our season of life and the things we want. How do you keep following Jesus then? That is the world of Genesis 4 through 6 this passage that we're looking at over the next few weeks in our study of Genesis. And you know the old saying, right, that it's always darkest just before things go completely black. That's, that's another great demotivational saying. I promise we'll get to some encouragement stuff. But how do you stay faithful in that time? Because that's the season God's people find themselves in, in Genesis 4 through 5. And so I want to sort of recalibrate our hopes this morning. And rather than, than hoping that, that revival is right around the corner, here are three other R's, three other R words that I think are a better foundation for staying faithful. They've encouraged me as I've thought about them this week. Three things from this passage. The first is this, that there is still a remnant that trusts God. No matter how bad things get, God preserves his people. So don't stop investing in them. Second, when times get desperate, here's the Second R word, it's a reminder. In desperate times, that's God's reminder of something true all the time, that you desperately need him. And three, and this is the foundation, there is always a reward for following God. God is a rewarder of those who seek him, always. That will fuel you to keep pursuing Jesus. And I hope it gives you a a firmer foundation for faithfulness, regardless of what season you think we're in as the church or what season you're in personally. So before we look at God's word, let's ask for God's help. These are sobering words, and we need his help this morning. So let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you're faithful. 
In fact, your word says that, that when we are faithless, you are faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Thank you that you are more committed to us than we are to you. We need your endurance. We need your strength. So would you encourage us from your word? We ask it for your sake. Amen. So how do you stay faithful when the world falls apart? First thing you need to know is this, that God always preserves a remnant of those who are faithful to him. So even if it looks like the world is falling apart, it's not. There are always those who are following God, but the question is this, how does that truth that God preserves his own motivate us to stay faithful? Well, let's look at this passage. So over the past few weeks in our study, we've been looking at the incredible destructive power of sin. Adam and Eve, our first parents, sin. They pass their sin on to their children. We see that with Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. He commits fratricide, which in the ancient world, that's like the worst sin imaginable. So we go from bad to completely bad in a generation. And just when things don't seem to get any worse, right, it doesn't seem to get any darker, it just gets darker. And the interesting thing here is that as sin grows and develops, it grows in power as culture develops, as civilization develops. Last week we saw that after Cain is exiled, he goes and he builds a city. And then his offspring, after he builds this city, they build a culture. And we could call this the city of death. This is just the, the metastasizing, evil, destructive power of sin overtaking civilization. We, we saw the worst of Cain's offspring last week, Lamech. And Lamech has three sons, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal, Cain. Now, all those names sound a bit familiar, and that's because they have the same Hebrew root. Uh, the root word means productivity or something like that. And one commentator says it speaks to their creativity, their inventiveness, because in these three sons of Lamech, you have all of the building blocks of, of culture. So you have urbanization, and then Jabal cultivates livestock. Jubal cultivates the arts, songs of the lyre and the harp. Max wanted to write a song called Jamming with Jubal for this week. It's kind of a jazz odyssey. I shot it down. So, um, yeah, you're welcome. Um, and then Tubal Cain, he works with metals. And so in this family, you've got urbanization, you've got livestock, you've got the arts, you've got technology. What do you have? You have the city. You have the city developing, but as the city develops, sin develops more rapidly. Lamech is this unspeakably evil character. He begets a culture of evil. Now, cities are not evil. God's intention is not for every single person to live on a farm. In fact, if you go to the end of the biblical story, what do you see? The, the city of God coming down, the new Jerusalem. So cities can be great things. Goods and services can be exchanged. Justice is administered in cities. The arts flourish in cities. People get protection in, in cities. And, and we are called as Christians to seek the welfare of San Leandro to whatever city we have been called. Here's the problem with cities. When people gather to cultivate and develop themselves, they cultivate sin. They develop sin. In fact, as people grow in their power, in their agency, sin gets what? More powerful. And there's this cascading effect that, that people use their God-given power to find new ways to sin. And it's so interesting. You see it in the song Lamech sings that we looked at last week in this culture of death, right? Lamech kills a guy. 
And he says this, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. If you come after me for killing that guy, may 500 people be killed (laughs) as a result. Now, here's what's so interesting about this, though. That's a song. This is poetry. So here you have the arts being used to glorify the city of death. And now sin is dominating. I think often, you know, this is the way that that cities work, that arts develop, culture develops, and yet we just get into cities and we see the brokenness and fallenness of the world. And if you've lived in cities for a long enough time, you walk in and it's just overwhelming, isn't it? Just like, my gosh, God, what are you doing? So I went on vacation and uh, I just got back and We didn't go to like Fiji or Tahiti. We went to the middle of the country because that's where our family is. And let me tell you what's in the middle of of the country. Not much. (laughs) I'm not dogging on it. I'm just saying there's not, it's pretty. It's green and then there's farm and then there's green and then there's a farm and then there's green and then a farm. And and it's, it's great. And I'm on a lake in Kentucky and I'm fishing with my son. And, you know, the only thing you can do while you're fishing, do you know what it is? Calm down. No one's ever said, oh, my God, right? No one has a, you know, a nervous breakdown fishing. All you can do is get bored until you catch a fish, right? And I'm like, man, the world's pretty great. Not many problems in the world. And, and the minute I come back to my city, it's like, wow. You feel the weight. Maybe you feel the weight just looking around our city and the problems, and you go, okay, God, what are you doing in the midst of that? See, that's the context of Genesis 4. You see the potential of the city, but you see the pain and the brokenness of the city. You think, God, what are you doing? Sin is spreading rapidly. Things are getting worse. And let's be honest, by the time we get to Genesis 4, even though it's the beginning of the story, it's like Satan has already won. Devil seems to have already won, and so in the city of death, what is the hope? Well, there's this little glimmer. It's not completely black. There's the seed of life, and that's the ray of hope at the end of chapter 4. The text says, says this, and Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed So in this world that is overcome by the city of death, God grants Adam and Eve another son. And notice what Eve says, it's another offspring. The word offspring is seed. Eve says this is another seed, and that should key us in as readers to what? Genesis 3, where God makes a promise, right? That the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And it's not just a seed, it's a seed in place of Abel. Abel was the seed of the woman. Abel was the good guy. He's the one who trusted God, who resisted evil. He gets killed. And now here is another Abel, another seed of the woman who will carry on God's redemptive program in the world. And we see that in Seth's name. The name Seth means foundation. This is God's new foundation for humanity. God is going to work now through Seth, and that's why immediately after the introduction of Seth, you get a new genealogy through Seth. Go into chapter 5, we read this, new section of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son at his own likeness after his image, and he named 
him Seth, and the rest of chapter 5 is tracing the lineage of Seth. Now, Genesis works through genealogies. Each genealogy moves the story forward, moves us to a new point, a new era in God's redemptive program. But, but here's the thing about genealogies. They're boring, right? No, Jeff, you're wrong. They're, at face value, they're kind of bored. This is why your Bible plans don't work, because you start reading the Bible, then you get to a genealogy, and then you miss a day, and, and then you have to start again in January of the next year, right? That's how this, this works. But, but, but I want to reframe the way we look at genealogies, because this is part of the drama of Genesis, right? Because if you start with this idea that the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent, then what are you attuned to? Where is this person going to come from? What line? Where is this deliverer? And so every time you see a genealogy, you see a specification of where God is working, and you're like, oh, wow. And now it's Seth, and it's clear that God's purposes still stand, right? This is why the writer reiterates here that humans are created in the image of God. The point of this, that Adam is created in the image of God, Seth is created in the image of Adam, which means he's created in whose image? God's image, right? Same image. The point of that is that even though sin is dominating in the city of death, God's image is still intact in human beings. That humans still have dignity and worth, and humans are still designed to rule over the world. That God's original plan isn't going to be thwarted. Subtext, and now it's happening through Seth and his line. And the encouragement for us is this. Even as the city of death reigns, there's always, always in the Bible, what? A seed of life. God keeps his own. Period. Which means the church is not going to die in our generation. Even if Creekside dies in our generation, the church is fine. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is going to win. And there are still plenty of people who have not bowed the knee to Satan. And who are going to be here when we're gone? I love the scene in, in, in 1 Kings, right, where Elijah... He confronts the prophets of Baal. You might remember that. He humiliates them, and he has this huge showdown, and it's a great Sunday school story, and he wins, but then he's distraught. He's distraught, and he goes into hiding, and he says to God, I and no one else, Lord. Have you ever felt that way? I and no one, no one has it as hard as me, Lord. And, Lord, I am the only one following you in all of Israel. I'm it. And remember what God says to him? He says, you're not it. You're not as, as alone as you think you are. There are 7,000 I have that have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are always more than you think there are. That's the truth. Who are still steadfastly following Jesus. Now, how does that feel faithfulness? Here's how. God's purposes will not be thwarted and God's purposes will outlive you. They will outlive you. That's the point. See, this is a problem, I think, for Westerners because we don't have a long-term view of history at all. We think change has to be immediate. Right now, I have to make the biggest impact I can in my life, and that's great. Go out and make a huge impact, but we don't have a vision for what God could do beyond our lifetime. 
that, that maybe God wants to work through us in a way that doesn't end when we die. Maybe there's a seed, a spiritual lineage that he's building through us, and that's how he's going to work, is by transferring my faith to the next generation, to the next generation, so that my faith had impact that will outlive me by a long shot. That's a different way of looking at faithfulness, isn't it? See, remembering the seed causes you to take a long-term view of spiritual impact, and it changes the question. Here's the implication. You stop simply asking, what can I do? But who am I investing in? Who am I investing in? This is a problem I run into a lot, that I view faithfulness by the quantity of my activity. I'm busy. I'm doing lots of things for Jesus, let me tell you. Got back from vacation, there's a gazillion emails, there's things to do, I got to go speak at this thing, and I think, man, I'm faithful. God, you are welcome. I am doing a lot of things right now for you. And, and, and here's, here's the thing, it's great to be active, but the way God works in the world is by passing on who we are to the next generation. And sometimes I can get so caught up in the present that I don't think about the future and who am I giving my life away to who's going to carry on Christ, who's going to hold the gospel dearly and, and be the presence of Jesus in the world, communicate that presence when I am gone, because that's the way faith is passed. One generation shall commend your works to another. And so this changes the way we view faithfulness, doesn't it? Who are you giving your life away to right now? See, it takes faith to do that because sometimes it's easier to just be busy doing a gazillion things than to say, I'm going to pick these one or two people and give my all to them and teach them everything I know about Jesus and following Jesus and praying for them and investing in them so they can carry it on. That, that is taking God's view of redemptive history. That feels faithfulness because ultimately I might not see it in my lifetime and yet the work will carry on after me. Does that make sense? First thing that feels faithfulness that's number one. There's a remnant. There's a remnant, and God's going to use you to carry on that remnant, carry on that faith. The second encouragement is this, that it is a reminder. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Really, they call for desperate dependence on God. Here's the truth. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, right? That's always true. You're always desperate for Jesus. You're always in need of his help and power and provision. Guess what desperate times do? They just give you a nice slap in the forehead of something that's always true. It's never like that wasn't true. It's just that when you get desperate, you realize, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm desperate. That's right. And that's what God uses to draw us closer to him. That's the encouragement here, that God will use that desperation to propel you to him like nothing else. You see that in Seth. He gets this right away, and we see it in how he names his own kid. It says, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, throughout Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, really, names always have deep significance. Name's not just a title or, you know, a name you really liked. It's, it, it conveys something about the time you live or the person. So Enosh, what does that mean? Well, in Hebrew, it means something like weakness or frailty. That's Enosh. You might say, Jeff, Seth is a jerk. Who would name their kid? Wimp. 
you are winning. Right? Is that? That's, that's not what he's doing. See, Seth isn't calling his son a, a wimp. Seth is acknowledging the desperation of humanity right now. And their need for God, it's an acknowledgement of dependence on God, of human frailty, because remember the context. The city of death is reigning. It's multiplying. Seth is the seed of the woman. What does Seth acknowledge? We're weak. God, we're not going to get out of this. God, we can't defeat this. And how do we know that's why Seth named his son Enosh? Well, look at what comes right after that. Right after he names his son Enosh, people began to do what? To call upon the name of the Lord. And the people in mind here are the seed of Seth. It's Seth and his descendants see the overwhelming evil of the world and it metastasizing and it impels them to do what? To call on God for help. That's what's happening. And you can see that parallel in the verse, right? He called his name Enosh. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. And throughout the rest of Genesis, whenever God's seed is in danger, What does it say? They called upon the name of the Lord. The exact same phrase is used. Here's the point, that that when times get desperate, it is God's reminder that we're always desperate. That apart from Him, we can do nothing. And throughout Scripture, God will use trials and afflictions just to remind us the thing that's already true that our resources, our capabilities, our wisdom, our righteousness, it really isn't the deal. In fact, unless God's Spirit works, nothing at all is going to happen. And the great temptation for any Christians is to believe that it is by my might and by my power and by the Spirit of God (laughs) that things happen. (laughs) That God and I are kind of, you know, we tag team and And now it's true God uses us, but the only power that changes is God's power at work through you, and that should make you desperate. It should make you desperate. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He speaks of this time when he was in Asia, and he says, we were so utterly pressed down, burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Paul says, we were so desperate, we thought we were about to die. We had the sentence of death on us. And what does Paul say? God did all of that so that it would make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Jesus, if there isn't a resurrection here, we're all going to die. And there's only one person qualified to bring it about. See, see, that's the place God wants us to get in because then we're blessed we're blessed when we're in that remember what jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit the first blessing in the sermon on the mount i love the way brian loretz says it he says blessed are those with a disposition of desperation i heard that and i said thank you brian i'm stealing that that is so good a disposition of desperation that's where god wants us because that's where we're happy That's when the pressure is off. That's when we realize unless God shows up, nothing is going to happen and we are blessed. Here's the implication, though. If we don't get to that point, we don't realize how big the problem is. (laughs) 
right? The implication is this. If desperate times don't lead us to call upon God, we're not desperate enough yet. If it hasn't forced you to seek God and only God, then you're not that desperate. I heard a great story about a pastor who went through this incredibly hard time in his life, the hardest time of his life, and he went through severe grief, difficulty, anxiety, and he was talking to his friend about it, and he just said, you know, I'm, I'm hopeless. And his friend said something very interesting. You've got to be a good friend to say something like this. But he said, you know what? He said, you're not, the problem isn't that you're hopeless, it's that you're not hopeless enough. <laughs> because you're looking to all of these different solutions, and the one thing you haven't been driven to do is to trust in Jesus alone to get you out of this. See, we're not desperate enough until we're seeking God. That's the truth. And so with any difficulty in my life, that is the question that I have to ask myself is have I actually sought God about it? If the only things I've done are be anxious about it, which by the way is different than praying about it, (laughs) talking to myself about it is different than talking to God, worrying about it, planning about it, obsessing about it, talking to other people about it, working about it, I'm not that desperate. I'm not that desperate because I still think that ultimately it's in my power to fix it. And so just a practical implication question is where, you know, that tension point in your life, that stress point where you go, oh, this is totally overwhelming. If it has not driven you to God yet, it's not yet overwhelming. And if you can spend time worrying about it, you can spend time praying about it. I like the way Kyle, one of our elders, said it a few years ago. He said, it's not that all these things in life are too small to worry about. It's that they're too big to worry about. That's why you got to pray about them instead of worrying about them. It's too big for you to worry about. It's impossible for you to worry about because it's, it's uncontainable. And so ask, will it drive me to prayer? Because then you know you're desperate. So hard times actually fuel faithfulness. There's a remnant, invest for the long term. This is a reminder, okay, I'm desperate. I'm going to go to Jesus. But, but this might be the tension we're feeling at this point. Listen, Jeff, I know, pray more. You've told me that before. I get it. But like, what's going to fuel me to keep coming to God if nothing changes in my circumstances? What's going to fuel me if things don't get better or if I don't get the outcomes I want? And that leads to point number three. And this is the root of it all. That the thing that will keep us coming back to God again and again is believing that he has a reward he can give us that no one else can. That God's a rewarder of those who seek him, and it might not be the reward we were after, but it's the best reward we could get. And that goodness of God is like a tether that will keep you to God in the worst days of your life or the worst days of our society or anything else. Let's look at this. So the genealogy, I'm not going to read through it. You can read through it. It's there for you to read. But whenever you see a genealogy, you should look for patterns. And then you should look for things that are different. What's the same about the way these people are described? And then what's different? What doesn't seem to fit, right? Sesame Street song, one of these things are not like the other. What is the thing that's not like the other? Because there's this pattern throughout the genealogy. When so-and-so had lived X amount of years, he fathered so-and-so, and and the days of so-and-so after this were this many years, and he had other sons and daughters, and underline this, he died. Thus, all the days of so-and-so were so-and-so years. And that pattern repeats itself again and again and again. We've got lots of questions about this genealogy, because as you read through it, people live for a really, really, really long time. 
And you think, man, that's, that's weird because people don't live that long anymore. And scholars debate that endlessly, and some people go, these numbers are significant for symbolic reasons, and they might be, but I have no idea what the symbolism is, so don't ask me, okay? Uh, there's like 20 different things it could be. Uh, and other people say, no, it's just God's spirit showing favor on the line of Seth to preserve good in the world, and this is this temporary arrangement, and that might be what's going on. But the thing that should stand out to you about the genealogy isn't how long people live, it's this, they die. They die, and they keep dying, and they keep dying except for one guy. Here is what stands out in the genealogy is this one guy named Enoch. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he died. No. What? Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That's all we know about Enoch. <laughs> he walked with God, says that twice, intimate, close relationship with God, and then boom, he's gone. And it's clear that he, God took him does not mean he died. That same word took him is used of Elijah, later the prophet, who is taken up, swept up into heaven. And those are the two guys in the Old Testament that cheat death for walking with God. He's just gone. Now, the question to ask is, why in the world would God include the story of Enoch? What's the point? You know, the funny thing is, like, Jews just went crazy speculating about this. They wrote books about what Enoch saw when he went to heaven. I mean, there's tons of literature about Enoch. In fact, there was so much literature about Enoch in Jesus' day that some of the ancient Jewish translations of the Old Testament retranslate this verse and say, Enoch died. <laughs> Just because they wanted people to stop speculating about Enoch <laughs> and what he did. We think, oh man, what did he do in heaven? The, the point, though, is what he did on earth. That's what we're supposed to focus in on. He walked with God. He walked with God in a very long life in an unspeakably evil culture, and then God gave him the reward of his presence. Boom. What is God saying through this? That even in the midst of the city of death, life breaks through, and even now there's a hint that death won't have the final word. It's just this little glimmer. And, and I love the parallel here because if you look at the genealogy of Cain, do you know who's seventh in the, in the line of Cain? It's Lamech, the worst guy, right? Seven is the biblical number of completion, so Lamech, you've got kind of the fruition of evil in the world. This is, this is really, really bad. Enoch is the seventh in the line of Seth. And here you see this, the fullness of walking with God and that God's line is going to endure. And so the question is this, why did Enoch walk so closely with God in the midst of chaos all around him? Why would God reward him with this? Well, we've got to go to the New Testament because Hebrews tells us. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And here's the lesson of Enoch. Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
The point of Enoch is this, that the tether of faithfulness to God is this unshakable belief that God will reward me if I come after God, that it is so intrinsic to the character of our Father to bless us, that it is so fundamental to His faithfulness to reward us graciously, that if I come, I am guaranteed a blessing from God, that it can't not not happen. <laughs> Hope I got the negatives right there. It will happen. It's impossible for it not to happen, that any time I draw near to God, I am favored, blessed in return, because God is that consistently good. And the question is, do we believe that? Because the thing you seek, you believe you're going to get a reward from. Period. In your life. Whether it's a substance, whether it's an addiction, or lust, or the approval of people, or your job, you think you're getting a return on your investment from that. And until you believe that the pleasures of God are superior to that thing, you won't stay close to Him. Here's the implication, though. When you seek God, is this. What reward am I looking for? What reward am I looking for? Because often we come to God wanting some outcome in our life, right? God, answer this prayer, answer this prayer, and often he does. But other times the truth is this, that God has a better reward when we come to him than we even could ask for. In fact, there are blessings God has that we don't even know about. And God wants to give them to us if we seek him. Let me give you an example of this, all right? So we have kids, and you know, at some point in my kids' lives, they thought the greatest thing that could ever happen is that my parents take me to the park, right? Nothing's better than the park. It's dangerous. There's swings. Um, like, please, can we go to the park? They did not know that Disneyland existed. <laughs> they didn't know yet. And so in the morning, they're like, you know, we're going to Disneyland. Like, what's that, the park? And they're like, sort of, you know, it's the happiest park in the world. And then they go to Disneyland, and then they don't, the park doesn't look so great, Right? I thought we were going to the park. I wanted to go to the park. And then they go, and now, right, like, I want to go to Disneyland. And now it's, when are we going to go to Disneyland again? And it's like, never. We're never going back. You can either go to college or Disneyland, right? Those are your choices. That's it. But, but see, see, God is a more generous father than a man. When you come to God, he's not limited in his resources, and he often has rewards that we weren't even seeking, but that he'll give us if we seek him. Let me give you an example of this. So, God might solve the thing you're anxious about, or maybe seeking Him, you will experience peace that means this thing doesn't need to get solved right now, but it doesn't have to consume me. You might be worried about, you know, provision, or you want something better in your life, right? I went out and saw my in-laws' houses, and they're all nice houses, man. They're all... You can just buy a mansion in the middle of the country. And I come back to my house, and my house is great, but I'm like, my house stinks now. I want to I fix up my house. God, give me money to fix up my house, right? And he might. Or maybe he'll give me more contentment. Which one's better? Maybe there's a, a significant conflict in my life, and I go, God, I have to resolve this. I have to resolve this. Make this go away. Resolve it. Uh, and maybe it'll just go away, or maybe God will make me a more courageous person. 
who's able to address conflict in a gracious, truthful way. And maybe that's how God is using it to make me the kind of person who can withstand conflict. That's a better reward. Maybe, maybe I want acceptance from this person. What God's going to realize is that disapproval isn't the end of the world. And that because I'm accepted in Christ, I have a better treasure. See, the reward God gives us for seeking him, it's not just about me getting my way, but about God as I humble myself, exalting me at the proper time and giving me better gifts than even I could ask for myself. Do you see how that's better? Let me show you practically how this works. Okay, I'll be, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm too pious as your pastor, so I'm just going to be real frank with you about what my times with Jesus are like. I just take it literally, you know, I'm the child, he's the dad, so when I go to pray, I act like a child. Gimme, 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 gimme. That's what I do. I'm a kid. I need things from God. And, you know, here's the thing. God loves that. He loves it when we just ask him because I need stuff, God. I got a list. Here it is. Gimme, 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 gimme. And, and some of that might not be great, but God sorts that out. And, 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 and we come to him. And, but, you know, sometimes when you get into the gimme mode with God, and I often do, right, you can get so consumed with, with your own problems. And all of a sudden, in the midst of doing that, I realized a few weeks ago that I was sort of glorifying my problems in prayer. That I was so focused on what I needed, and I just thought, okay, you know, kind of, you know, prayer 101 here, okay, petition, asking God is one thing, but adoring God is another part of prayer, of just reflecting on how big He is. And so I just spent some time in a few of the throne room passages in the Bible and just remembered how enormous and terrifying God is, and that my life is a vapor, and that every evil person's life in this world is a vapor. People who are so terrifying now, they're gone tomorrow, and God endures. And you know what happened? I went back to pray, and I'm like, eh, okay, let's pray about these problems, these ones, you know, <laughs> eh, I'm okay. See, God gave me a better reward than what I was even seeking. That is the tether that will keep you to Jesus, that he is that gracious, he is that good when we come to meet him. And then you can stay faithful to him like Enoch even when the world collapses. And family, here's what's sobering, and we're going to end here, about this passage, that, that the line of Seth continues, but those who are faithful to God narrow down to just one person in his family, and that's Noah. And then in Noah, in the line of Seth, resides the hope of the world. And that's why we get to the end of it. And another Lamech, ironically enough, is Noah's dad. And he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground of the Lord is cursed. This one shall bring relief or rest. That's what Noah means from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. There's this hope in Noah. We'll get to him next week. But think about it, that God preserves his seed but man, it's just through the eye of a needle. Noah is preserved, and then as a new Adam, ushers in this new world. And of course, that's a picture of who? Jesus. That ultimately, the seed that God's going to use, God narrows that line down to just one, the greater Noah, Jesus. And he's the only guy who gets it right. He's the faithful one. And, and God works through the one to bring us forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And isn't that encouragement now that no matter how bad things get, you can say they've gotten worse. <laughs> In fact, even if there's one, 
God can redeem everything, and that's what he does through Jesus. That's our hope, that he's going to be faithful, even when we're faithless. Let's pray. So thank you, Jesus, that you are. And Jesus, I pray this morning that, that this message, Spirit, um, <laughs> I am desperate for you to work. I can't minister to the hearts of each person in this room. I don't know their story. I don't know their built-in objections to what I'm saying. I don't know their hardship. I don't know all of their pain. But Spirit, you do. And so take your preached word and Lord, show them where they need to trust, where they need to turn, what comfort they can take. Jesus, thank you that on the darkest day of history, you redeemed everything. And you were the only one of the seed of the woman who could. We praise you, Jesus that you are working out your purposes even in the worst of times. In your name.